kind of a strange title. I think you'll see where I'm going in a moment. Job 30, The Power of Humiliation. Just to give you a, a little bit of a quick kind of catching up, especially if you haven't been here in the series on the book of Job, is we've gone chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Job. We've covered quite a bit of material, and if you are new to the study, the uh, previous messages are on the website. This is a book about suffering. This is, you know, when we hear the name Job, Job becomes an automatic that we think of a man who suffered. And if you've ever gotten into the book of Job, you may have gone to the book of Job at a time when you were going through suffering. That's usually when people want to read Job, either then or when they need a job or a job, because they think that's a, but never mind. Anyway, so if you've read the book of Job, you know that he is a righteous man. You know that God uh, sees him as righteous. He's the greatest man of the East, the greatest man of his culture. And yet something happens in the heavens, and it's a dialogue between God and Satan. And Job doesn't know what's happening, but what he does know is that he begins to suffer uh, what we would call unspeakable suffering. And a lot of people who have looked at the book of Job over the years have really, you know, uh, if you're a skeptic or if you're an agnostic or an atheist, you begin to look at the book of Job and say, is God some sort of God that just like take bets? He takes bets in heaven and he's kind of just, you know, doing a bet with Satan to see how much Job can take. And what's this all about? What's the purpose of this book? And we introduced a concept that I don't want you ever to forget, and I don't want to ever forget it either, and it's this, and you may not have heard this before, but this is a key to understanding the book of Job. Job is a picture of Jesus. He is a picture of an innocent sufferer who goes through something that is a picture of redemptive suffering. So that in the book of Job, we have talked about the problem of evil and the power of the gospel. Now, if you were to interview people on the streets of the Inland Empire, if you were to talk to friends and family, co-workers, and ask them what question would you have for God, if you had one question for God, and you could ask it tonight, what, what question would you have? And I think a lot of people would say, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? The book of Job addresses that question and shows us a man who was righteous, who was godly, who before the Lord was blameless, not perfect, but he, he was doing the main things of life consistently right. He was a good man, and yet he goes through all this terrible suffering. And the book of Job ultimately is trying to get us to see that there's a greater Job coming. There's a ultimate innocent sufferer that will be more righteous than Job because he will be in all points tested as us yet without sin. And so the story of Job is kind of laying the groundwork for the hope of Jesus, the innocent sufferer. If you can understand the book of Job with that backdrop, you've got a head start on most people who will read Job and be a little bit confused about what's the point of the book. The point of the book is ultimately to tell us there is a real problem of evil. Even tonight, I know, you know you've probably been watching the news like me and you know the world's in some turmoil 
and there's uncertainty, and it looks like it's calmed down a little bit, but we never know, you know, in a given week, a given day, what can happen. And it drives us to pray for our leaders, and it drives us to pray for the world, and it drives us for cooler heads to prevail, and all of this stuff. But we know the history of man has not been a pretty history. It's been littered with war and evil. And some things are easy to explain. If someone shoots another person or someone, you know, uh, does a dastardly deed, it's, it's not hard to figure out. But there's other questions that we have about cancer and, you know, this broken, fallen world that are not as easy to deal with. So this problem of evil is actually a theological um, topic that books have been written about, that studies are endeavored, uh, that explanations are given. Some years ago, I saw a debate, Ravi Zacharias and William Lane Craig representing the Christian worldview with a outspoken atheist and kind of an Indian uh, polytheist that believed every religion had truth in it. And the atheist jumped on the book of Job, and his big thing was, what's God doing in this book? What's this book all about? Why does God allow this suffering in Job's life? And you may have questions like that tonight that are very personal. Why? We just got word uh, a little while ago as we were praying that a beloved uh, church member is on his deathbed and the family's you know, got some tough decisions to make about you know, keeping him attached to a machine. And life is hard. And even when it feels like we're, we got some smooth sailing, then we get another curveball. And so th if you're here tonight and you're a little bit new to the book of Job, I want to encourage you that you're in the right place. Whenever we sit before uh, the word of God, we're in the right place. Amen? So the power of humiliation. Uh, let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for each precious person that's come tonight. Thank you for a new year, 2020, that we can... We want to see more clearly. We want to know you better. These are some of the things that we've kind of put out there for ourselves and for this congregation, that we would know you better, see the world through your eyes, even see our suffering through your eyes. And that's very hard, Lord. And we confess tonight that we need all the help we can get. So would you help us as we study your word to see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear, make our hearts pliable, to your ways. Your ways are above my ways. Your ways are above what I see. So help us, Lord. You know what every need in this room is tonight, those who may listen to this through the internet or the radio or whatever it may be. And so we're asking for your mercy. We're asking that you would speak to us. May it not be the voice of a man. May it be your voice that is heard ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, as we've gone through the study, I've introduced you to the idea of a psalm of lament. Many of the book, uh, the psalms within the book of Psalms, scholars call the psalm hymnal the Psalter. So if you've ever heard that before, it's the Psalter, and it's got a bunch of little, a uh, bunch of different songs in it. And a lot of them are lament songs, and they are kind of like, Lord, life's a bummer. Let me paraphrase. Lord, life's a bummer. Where are you? Help me. I don't get it. That's what a lot of the psalms are about. This particular chapter is considered a lament chapter where Job feels this great humiliation. Uh, Martin Luther said about the Psalms of Lament, 
He said, what is the greatest thing in the Psalter but this earnest speaking amidst the storm winds of every kind? Where, where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of Lamentation? There again, you look into the hearts of the saints as into death, yes, as into hell itself. When they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter could so depict for your fear or hope, and no Cicero or other orator has so portrayed them. And that they speak these words to God and with God, this, I repeat, is the best thing of all. This gives the words double earnestness and life, close quote. If you've ever tried to do your problems without God, lots of luck. And even when you don't understand things, if your laments go upward to God, at least you're bringing God into the problems, amen? But if you don't have the Lord, then where do you go? What are your answers? What do you depend upon? And so a lot of the Psalms are an honest wrestling with these ideas. Let's uh, jump into Job 30, and then I'll, we're going to make a left turn to a psalm. But here's how Job opens up chapter 30. By the way, um, just by way of review, too, these are the last two chapters where Job speaks, and then we won't hear from Job again. God is going to answer him in chapter 38. So for those of you who have been through the whole study of Job, and you're like, when is God going to speak? Just a few more chapters. Hold on. It's coming. It's like a good movie. you got to just wait. You know how they do that to you? They make you wait with the cliffhanger for the next episode so you come back and watch it. That's kind of what's happening in the book of Job. He says, but now, Job 30, verse 1, those younger than I mock, if you have an ESV, they laugh at me, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Now, chapter 30 is a contrast with chapter 29. And in chapter 29, Job was talking about his blessed life. He knew God, he walked with God, he was prosperous, he had a huge estate, he had many servants, many children, he helped the poor, he helped the weak, he helped the widow, he helped the needy, he was a good man. And because he had been so blessed by God, he had the resources, spiritual wisdom and monetary resources to be very helpful and benevolent to a lot of people so someone might say hey if you got a problem and you're hurting a little bit or you need a a pearl of wisdom or maybe you're behind on a light bill go see job he's a good man he's got lots of resources lots of connections he'll he'll probably pray for you and give you something to help you in your life that's the kind of man that Job was. And then everything changed. And he became a byword, a joke, even to the young. And in, in this culture and society of that day, you respected your elders. You addressed them with respectful greetings. You honored them. Today, that's going by the wayside. Amen? Uh, there's not a whole lot of respect, it seems, in a lot of cases. And Job had the respect of young people. In fact, in the previous chapter, Job painted a picture that when he entered into a room, the young people would kind of just, uh, you know, they would open the Red Sea for his appearance and they would kind of just go away. 
He was that respected, that awed, that feared. He was that kind of guy, you know, where there was a, a healthy respect for the man. But now the young, look at verse 1, they laugh at him. And Job says, even their fathers, the one mocking me, I wouldn't have put him with my sheepdogs. Now, for those of you who are dog lovers like me, what's Job saying? Is he putting down the dogs? No. He's actually saying that sheepdogs are useful because they would help you with your flock and they would keep them in line. And he says, these guys, dads are so low that I wouldn't even let them run with my sheepdogs to do that job or maybe even put them in charge of my sheepdogs. I told you we take a left turn to uh, Psalm 44. Let's go over. There's a psalm of lament. And uh, this is an example that you can... I'm sorry, you got to take a right turn. Psalm 44. And I want you to get a, another flavor for some of these psalms of lament, because that's kind of what this chapter is all about. Here's, uh, these are good medicinal psalms, so good places to be when life is not easy. He says in Psalm 44, look at verse 13. Thou dost make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, Note, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches me, and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. Oftentimes when, times when the people of Israel were conquered by another nation or things weren't going well, you know, they were proud of their heritage, proud of the scriptures, proud of their God. And sometimes when things went wrong in the nation or wrong in their personal lives, people would say, well, where's your God now? If your God's this, this deity that's supposed to be over all the earth, why is your life in a shambles? Sometimes when we're going through pain and suffering, we feel shame, and we often feel shame because of our shortcomings, and that can turn into humiliation, and humiliation is almost a synonym for shame. It's really very similar. This author says, shame is, in fact, hating yourself. He said, I recently read these descriptions of shame that seem to align perfectly with my experience. Shame is hating yourself and understanding why other people hate you too. Shame is like a prison, but a prison that you deserve to be in because something is wrong with you. Shame is the opposite of the gospel. Shame says, yes, you've made mistakes. You've made a mistake which is typical for a total loser like yourself. The gospel says, yes, you've made a mistake, and here's some grace to redeem you. Shame says, you're not perfect. And consequently, you're unworthy of love. The gospel says you're not perfect. And despite your imperfection, you are deeply loved. Shame says you're uniquely flawed and absolutely do not belong. The gospel says everybody has flaws, including you. But in Christ, we all belong. Shame says you are hopeless. The gospel says you may be guilty, but Jesus Christ is your hope. Amen? Sometimes we, we do that to ourselves. We're on this vicious circle of self-shaming and self-loathing because we are imperfect. And sometimes 
even, I'll tell you as a pastor, the same grace that I preach, I don't always give to myself. My expectations are pretty high of myself. And so if I skin my knee or if I make a mistake or my thinking is wrong or whatever it may be, sometimes I have a tough time believing that God gives me the same grace that I preach. Can I get a witness? Anybody else wrestle with that kind of stuff? And so what we need to understand is that God has grace for us. Now, grace, we remember in Romans 6, is never an excuse for sin. We don't say, well, God will forgive me, so I'm going to go ahead and do this dumb thing because grace, 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 grace. No, because if you take advantage of God's grace in that way, God may spank you. But if you're living your life and you're going along and you fell, you fell down or you skinned your knee or you made a mistake, look, God knew when he signed you up that you were imperfect, amen? Now, we're all in process, but these, these uh, lament psalms, I think, are encouraging for us to see we're not alone. All day long, verse 15, Psalm 44 my dishonor is before me. My humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals, covered us with the shadow of death, if we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart, 22. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. Many of you will note that this verse is quoted in Romans 8. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But you guys know how Romans 8 goes. But, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So there's encouragement even in the New Testament quoting this verse. And then the psalmist says, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Now that's an example of how Job feels if you turn back to the book of Job chapter 30 and how we often feel and I think it's important for us as believers to be real with God because he already knows how you're feeling anyway. You're not to be, I'm not to be dishonoring to God. I'm not to be disrespectful to God. But I'm also to know that God is my father. Amen? And because he's my father and I'm his son, I can go to my father and know that he will have compassion See, what father's not compassionate towards his children that he loves? And as a father, a human father, if we can think of a good example of a human father would have compassion on his son or his daughter, so our father has compassion on us. He knows our DNA. He knows what we're made of. He knows that we are dust and we struggle. And so Job is going through it, and, and he's looking at the people that mock him that are frankly like the bottom of society. He wouldn't even let these guys run with his sheepdogs 
And they're the ones that are mocking him, stripping him of his dignity. If you've ever been there before where something happened in your life and you kind of became the laughing stock, maybe among a f- group of friends or you know, maybe uh, some of you experienced some form of bullying or you, know, you would show up somewhere and you know, people are kind of whispering under their breath about you. You kind of know what this feeling's like. Indeed, he says, he's continuing to talk about these mockers. What good was their strength? The strength of their hands to me. Vigor had perished from them. From want and famine, they are gaunt. These are the mockers. That, that, who gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. Who pluck mallow by the bushes and whose food is the root of the broom shrub. If you're taking notes, verses 2 through 4 highlight the mockers' uselessness. They are unemployable, says one writer. They have no vigor. They have no strength to give. They have no energy, no stamina, no concentration, no skills, and no sense. If you have a New Living Translation, it says in verse 2, a lot of good they are to me, those worn-out wretches. They're haggard. They wander around gnawing at the dry, parched ground, looking for scraps or things that can fill them. But it's not because they're sick or have a series of unfortunate events that drove them to this life. This is who they are. This is how they live by choice. Verse 4 in the ESV says, They pick saltwort and the leaves of bushes. The saltwort is a perennial shrub identified as Atriplex halimus, which because of its saltiness is eaten only in dire circumstances. From the broom tree, Retama rotam, one of the larger plants in the desolate regions of Sinai and the Dead Sea, they collect roots possibly to make into charcoal to set a fire. You say, what's the point of this, Pastor Michael? Why is Job highlighting the uselessness of these individuals to say that he sunk so low, if I can put it this way, that people who dig through trash cans for their food are the ones that mock Job as a joke? See, this is what's happened. The man that was the greatest in the East has gone so low that the lowest of society make fun of him. That's how far Job has fallen. And in other chapters that we study together, Job is so weak, so diseased, so broken and shattered as a man, that when people walk by to mock him, he can't even really respond. We saw some of the chapters earlier in the book where people were actually encircling him and spitting at him, and laughing at him and bringing friends to do the same. Look at him, the great Job. There he is. <laughs> Throwing things at him, spitting at him. And Job would say something like this Oh God, when will you hear my cry? They, the mockers, are driven from the community five. They shout against them as against a thief. When one of these guys shows up in the neighborhood, People say, no, don't let that guy near your property. Don't let him near your daughter. Don't don't ever hire him. They dwell in dreadful valleys, the holes of the earth and of the rocks. They have no house. They don't work. Among the bushes, they cry out. Under the nettles, they are gathered together. This is a revealing of the mocker's reputation. And while some commentators take issue with what Job is saying here, like, 
Is Job being terrible toward these per- people? No, he's just saying who they actually are. And the irony is that these are the guys that are mocking Job. And that's how low Job feels. He say, says they are fools, even those without a name, eight. They were scourged from the land. Fools in the Bible is not someone who's mentally uh, stupid or short of mental ability. A fool is someone who does wickedness like a sport, Proverbs 10.23. He's a man of no wisdom. Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold, Proverbs 22.1. When a man is without a name here, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a name. It just means that he has a name that has no honor. And in our culture, I pray, and I'm speaking now to parents and grandparents primarily, that you will teach your children about the honor of a name and the honor of a word, that you're a man of your word, that you're a man of integrity, that you're a woman of honor, that your yes is yes and your no is no, and you don't have to qualify with, I swear to God, and I double pinky promise, and I cross my heart, and hope to die if I, you don't need to do any of that. Because if you're a man or a woman of your word, then you have a good name. And a good, and a good name in the book of Proverbs is better than riches. These men, these men, these young men who taunt Job, they don't have that kind of reputation. And now, nine, I have become their taunt. Do you see what Job is saying? And now, NIV, their sons mock me in song. I've become a byword among them, new living. And now they mock me with vulgar songs and they taunt me. They come out of the caves and the holes and from underneath the bushes, from their charcoal fires, from the scraps, with their no names, bad reputations, unemployable, and they walk by me on the ash heap, and they've even made up a few songs about me. Come over! We'll sing about Job! There he is! Job on the junk pile! <laughs> Job, 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 you know, like the kids on the playground. Job, Job, he's a mess. Job, Job, couldn't care less. <laughs> Whatever. Just made that up on the spot. They abhor me and stand aloof from me and they do not refrain, would you note it? End of 10, from spitting at my face. In that culture, to spit in someone's face was about the worst disgrace possible. And that's what they do. They come by singing their little songs and because he's so weak and such a disaster, and nobody steps in to help. They come by and they, they spit in his face. And then the next one does it. And then the next one does it. And then they sing the song a little bit more. And they bring their friends over. Sad, isn't it? How could someone of such great reputation have sunk so low? But do you see it, brethren? Who's he a picture of? Jesus. And now we're beginning to understand a little bit about the picture that God is painting because the one who inhabited heaven, the one who had the glory with his father before the world was, 
Where is he born? In a cave or a stable. Or perhaps a tower, if you were with us for that message. Where does he grow up? A place called Nazareth. How does he live? As a carpenter, ministering largely around the Sea of Galilee. Rejected by the religious leadership. Rejected by much of his people. How does he die? As one considered under the curse of God. What do people do? He's probably crucified along a main street so that his feet are probably at about eye level as he is suffering, perhaps naked on the cross, and in full shame and humiliation. The Son of God! God the Son! We beheld his glory! The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what happens? He's crucified. And one of the People there, on a cross, deservedly so, a thief and a robber, he begins to hurl abuse at the Son of God. Yeah, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and save us too. Perhaps they had a song that they sang. People came by, the Bible says from Psalm 22, that they wagged their heads at him and they said, you who claim to be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Can you imagine having the power that Jesus had on that cross, oh, I'm not sure I could have taken five minutes of it without shooting a missile out of my eye. <laughs> I would have fried at least a couple of people. Oh, yeah, smart aleck. <laughs> what happened to Fred? He's smoking. Yeah. In Mark 14, 65, some began to spit at Jesus and to blindfold him and beat him with their fists. They said to him, prophesy. The officers received him with slaps in the face. Mark 15, 17 through 20 says, they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to acclaim him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed. They were spitting at him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his garments on him and led him away. To crucify him. Job's indignity, says one writer, foreshadows one who will be cursed and mocked by a violent robber, a violent robber under capital punishment. And one of the, the two comes to his senses at some point and says, Hey, what are you doing? We deserve to be here, but this man is innocent. Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, most assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me, where? In paradise. The thief essentially said, Lord, would you forget what I've done and just remember me. And Jesus, think about the, that other thief. He's in the same kind of humiliation and shame as Jesus. And that, Forgiveness gets extended by the greater Job because Job begins to target the one that he thinks is responsible. If you have an ESV, it says, because God has loosed my cord or unstrung my bow, middle of 11, and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. 
Writers say that the metaphor that Job uses here is that his body is like a tent and God has slackened the central cord so that the tent sags. Job is saying that God has done this. Now, is God responsible for this? Ultimately, yes. God has allowed it. But who's the one throwing everything Job's way? Satan, right? Scholars who study this idea of demonic possession, and I've shared this with you as we've gone through some of the Gospels, say that one of the chief aims of someone being demonized is that the goal of the demonic power is to destroy the person's humanity. Or, to put it another way, to destroy the imago Dei, the image of God in the human. So that that person who's been so devastated by that power, that dark power, no longer appears to be human. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, we know that there's language in Isaiah 53 that seems to indicate that, the, that he was marred beyond human recognition. And some of us watched, you know, with eyes covered, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. And, and some of it was hard to take. And I remember some years back, I was sitting with some pastors and we were talking about this concept on a radio program. And one of the pastors said he had done in-depth studies on the Hebrew and he said that he's not sure that Mel Gibson went far enough to depict the suffering of Jesus Christ. On the right hand, their brood arises, 12. They thrust aside my feet. They build up against me their ways of destruction. Job begins to paint a metaphor, a picture of a city besieged by a, a coming army. They break up my path, 13. They profit from my destruction. No one restrains them. It's like Job sitting there and no one stops the terrible songs and the spitting. No one, no one pushes back the bully or says to this group, get out of his face as through a wide breach like a hole in a wall. In ancient times, cities had these huge walls to protect them. And if you breached the wall, it was a way for your army to get in and attack your enemy. Well, Job paints the picture, the breach in the wall is so big that they just keep flooding in. The army keeps coming one after another, after another, after another. And you have to pause and stop and hear Job say, oh God, where are you? What did I do wrong? Help me understand. Terrors are turned against me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity have passed away like a cloud. See in verse 15, terrors. Um, just write this down for your notes. This is Job 18, 14. He is torn, Bildad speaking of the wicked. He is torn from the security of his tent and they march him before the king of terrors. The king of terrors was seen as the prince of the dead. And Job is saying terror after terror comes at me, my honor is gone like the wind, my prosperity, my estate, my uh, servants, my family, gone. Some of you may have heard today that there was a testimony shared on Focus on the Family by Adolf Coors IV. He's uh, one of the family members of the Coors Brewing Company in there in Colorado. And uh, 
He was talking about his uh, upbringing. He went to Denver University, one of the top business schools in the country, got a, a business degree, uh, went to Wall Street for years, made a bunch of money. He was married with a beautiful son. He was heir to take over the Coors Brewing Company. And so he said that he had, uh, he had gone to the company and they were grooming him for the position. And he said he, he was so immersed in business that he spent day and night at the company. He rarely saw his wife. He said he didn't even know his son. He said it was all about this. And he actually pulled a, uh, some currency out to show people who his God was. And he said it went on and on like this, so driven to know everything about the business and do a great job that I, I was on the verge of a divorce. I didn't know my son. Eventually the marriage got so rocky, he was alone in a hotel room. Somewhere along the way, there was a VP in the Coors Brewing Company who was invited over uh, to have dinner with this Adolf Coors IV and his wife. And the man and his wife, there was something different about him and her. And they began to share the gospel with Adolf Coors and his bride. He said three days later, his wife became a Christian. And I don't know the timing of his own conversion, but eventually he became a Christian. Now this is Adolf Coors the fourth speaking to people like us. And here's what he said. If money, business, fame, power, position are your God, your life is going to be an empty disaster. Turn to the living God. Now, when you hear a man like that in a position where he would have power and money for the rest of his days, people at his beck and call, people, Mr. Coors, nice to see you this morning. Welcome with you. You know, all of that. I'll tell you what, it means nothing. If you're on the verge of a divorce, if you don't even know your child, I don't care what company you're running. I don't care how much money you make. It means nothing. Nothing. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We're going to teach the passage this coming Sunday. But I will tell you this, Jesus took the curse, the pain, the suffering, so that we could be free and forgiven. We're going to get a look into the depth of the suffering of Job and get a picture of the suffering of the Messiah in 16 and following. And now, my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction, says Job, have seized me. At night, it pierces my bones within me. And my gnawing pains take no rest. Now, some of you who are here tonight know what it is like to be in constant, unceasing physical pain. And you, that may be you, or you may know somebody, or you may have cared for somebody, and you don't know what constant, unceasing physical pain is like until you experience constant, unceasing physical pain. And it is easy sometimes for us to say, I'll pray for you, you know, and my heart goes out to you until you are the you. And now you're experiencing this day and night, you can't even sleep and you're wondering, am I ever going to get a break from this? Is this ever going to end? I want you to turn to Psalm 22 and show you a parallel to the Messiah. Psalm 22 is one of the great messianic psalms a thousand years before Jesus 
lived and died. It, it was written by David. <clears throat> Check out some of the language paralleling what we just read. It says of Messiah in Psalm 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water, 22, 14. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a postured. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs, 22:16, have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Check this out. A thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is also considered a psalm of lament, but it's prophetic about Messiah. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword and my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Back to the book of Job and we'll finish it up. When Jesus was dying on the cross, they pierced his side and blood and water came out. Jesus uh, fits many of these descriptions in Job as feeling like his vitality was poured out. We know the, the pain and the agony of crucifixion, so we don't need to go into that. Back in Job 30, verse 8, it says, By a great force my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. It feels as though God has grabbed his garment so fiercely and pulled it so tightly around his body that every part of him is squeezed like a tight shirt collar or maybe like your pants after the holidays. <laughs> I put that in my notes because I thought you needed a little levity at this point in the message because I am feeling it, <laughs> right? So the sweets come around the holidays and you say, a cookie and a cookie and another cookie. And then, how many of you made resolutions within the month of December and then realized right as you were speaking it, it's not going to happen? <laughs> because here comes that, and here comes this dessert, and they're bringing that over, and later we're going out to dinner, and, and I don't want to eat a salad. So I'll repent in January. How many of you are there right now? You're in repentance January. Can I get a witness, anybody? Did you, some of you have to move to your fatter clothes, you know, the clothes in the closet. You say, I, <laughs> I was going to give these away, but now they kind of fit me a little bit better. But I've repented. No more sweets in January. And then you go to the office, you return from vacation, and it's somebody's birthday. And they brought the chocolate cake. <laughs> and you're like, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll start you Tomorrow, diet, you're only a day away. <laughs> Sorry, that's a personal confession. It's supposed to be good for the soul. Anyway, we'll move on. Job can't get comfortable. Here's the picture. The tightness, almost like you ever had someone grab you by the collar and just turn it and squeeze it? Job's like, God, let go! Whatever message you're trying to get to me, I'm listening with full ears. Please release me. Please loosen the grip. He's cast me 
19, Job 30, into the mire. I become like dust and ashes, like the pile I sit on that we saw early in, I think, Job chapter 2. God's supposed to save me from the miry clay, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, not cast me into it. You ever had questions like that? Like, God, the Bible says you're good. The Bible says you're never a present help in time of need, but I've been praying about this for a long time. Now Job will directly address God for the first time. I cry out to you for help, but thou does not answer me. I stand up trying to get your attention, and thou dost turn thy attention against me. Thou hast become cruel to me. With the might of thy hand thou dost persecute me. He's talking to God. Thou dost lift me up to the wind. Sometimes God, in, like in Psalm 18, is depicted as riding on the wind to save and rescue his people with fire and power. And he comes riding on the wind, but Job says, you come riding in on the wind just to hit me again. I thought you'd come and rescue me, but the wind just blows me down again. Thou dost lift me up to the wind, cause me to ride, and thou dost dissolve me in the storm. For I know that thou wilt bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all the living. I'm just waiting for it to happen. I'm going to die. One writer says, Although Job will, die into, will not die until a good old age, he is getting a taste of the death Jesus would die under the judgment or wrath of God. There is a terrible divine necessity about redemptive suffering. It is not that God does not hear, but rather it is somehow necessary for us to cry in vain and wait in hope until he achieves in us and in his world what he wills to achieve, close quote. You ever thought about that one? The Bible says in 1 Peter that some of you are suffering if necessary, and you, you have to say, why would it be necessary for me to suffer? What would that accomplish, Lord? But there's something about the ways of God, and I don't have the knowledge or the wisdom to explain all the angles to you, but there's something about suffering put into the equation of the Christian life where God does something that perhaps doesn't happen at any other time in our lives. And I'll tell you one thing I do know it does, and I say this with fear and trembling from this hunk of wood. I know it drives me to God. When I can't make sense of a season I'm in, when I don't get it, when my question marks are many, I say, oh Lord, help me. When I have to stare my weaknesses in the face, when my suffering doesn't end as quickly as I'd like it to. And then sometimes I think you and I can look back and we can say, you know what? That season of suffering actually has produced something in me that has been really healthy for me spiritually. No, I don't want to go through it again. Anybody? <laughs> right after I say that. No, Lord. From my lips to your ears in the throne room. <laughs> Not saying I want it. <laughs> I told you guys before, we used to be part of a church group and the uh, youth pastor's wife 
we'd be in a prayer circle and she would pray something like this quite often. Lord, I'm getting too comfortable. You haven't sent me a storm in a while. So would you send me a storm? I'm getting too comfortable. And, and I would let go of her hands. I do not say the amen. I will not receive that. <laughs> Some years ago, we were... Um, playing some church softball. Church softball is always interesting because it's Christians playing against Christians, but then it's competition, right? So we're in a prayer circle after a game, and it's something about the Yankees were in the playoffs, and one of the players prayed for the New York Yankees baseball team. Oh, there was massive division. We started a fist fight right there. No, just kidding. But one of the players said, after this guy prayed for the Yankees, he said, I will not say the Amen. Anyway, you guys know what I'm saying. Yet, does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand, or in his disaster therefore cry out for help? 24. Jesus takes the wrath of God. In order to understand the cross, you have to understand this. When Jesus is dying on the cross, the main burden that he feels with all the pain and suffering that he endures is he is experiencing the wrath of God for you and me. Do you see the connection to Job? See, Job's getting a taste of what Jesus would go through. Not the full taste of it, but a taste. Because as Jesus dies on the cross... God the Father pours his judgment on God the Son. That's why the sky grows dark when Jesus is dying on the cross. It's a sign of judgment. That's why the earth is quaking. That's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me all alone? This is what's going on. The judgment of Almighty God coming on the innocent, greater Job, Jesus. He says, Job begins to compare himself to God. He says, have I not wept for the ones whose life is hard, 25? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? I've done a lot of good things. You know, when we're suffering, that's often what we do is we, we appeal to our resume. God, I've been living pretty good. <laughs> Don't you know what I've been up to lately? I paid for the guy's food behind me in the drive through line. That's got to score a couple of points. And then I didn't realize he ordered 18 burritos. Come on! I'm living right and now this kind of stuff happens. When I expected good, 26, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. I'm seething within. Everything's churning. Cannot relax. Days of affliction confront me day after day. I go about mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. Would somebody help me the way I helped others? Would the churning just stop for 15 minutes within my insides? I've become a brother to jackals, a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black on me. It speaks here of disease. My bones burn with fever. How many of you can hear coyotes at your house? Anybody? So coyotes are a crazy sound, isn't it? Because... Uh, when you hear them howling individually and then they get in that group and they start going, <laughs> it's freaky, right? And they, they do this cry, howl 
kind of combination. And a jackal sounds very similar to a coyote. And so you can imagine that Job says, man, jackals are like my family members now because I can howl the same as they. And an ostrich kind of has a low hissing sound is what I understand. Therefore, Job says, my harp is turned to mourning or tuned. I've tuned my, my flute to the sound of wailing. My song, I only play sad songs on the radio now. <laughs> anybody get it? Anybody been there before? You go through a breakup, you're at a sad time. I'm just going to play sad songs now because I'm just in a bummer mood. I'm putting on the sad songs. Dog died, car broke down. I'll play it backwards, play it forwards, right? That's what Job is saying. He said, man, I just tuned my instrument to sounds of mourning because that looks like that's all I'm going to play. All right, I want you to turn to Philippians 2, and Shane, if you can come up, we're, we're going to be done. Philippians chapter 2, all the way in your New Testament. The humiliation of Jesus in this grand uh, text about how he humiliated himself voluntarily and how he is God says these words. Philippians 2 verse 5. Some application for us as well. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed, Philippians 2.6, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself, seven, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, at the end of the book of Job, Job will be exalted again, and God will bless him again. And there's a parallel. For this reason, also God, after Jesus went through this terrible suffering, highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Keep reading. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure. So, do some things without, no, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Father, <clears throat> we are grateful for your living word, grateful for the book of Job, grateful for the lessons and the parallels that we've just touched on tonight. Thank you for the word which is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Would you help us as your people, even if we're in a season of suffering, 
a season of question marks, to hold fast to what we've believed, to work out what you're working in, to know that you're molding and shaping us in every season of life. If we're in a good season right now, an exciting season, praise the Lord. Maybe we're somewhere in between. Maybe we need to be stirred tonight. Whatever it may be, Lord, you know. And I pray that you would help us to realize that you're always working in our lives in every season. Beloved saint, I want to encourage you to just keep holding on. He's not going to let you go. Wherever you find yourself tonight, if you're going through that season of question marks, just, just know he's got you. And he's going to see you to the finish line. If you're not a believer tonight and you're trying to do life without God, my heart breaks for you. But you can have him as your Lord and Savior tonight just by simply saying, Lord, I believe in Jesus, his death on the cross, prayed if it's you, his resurrection, and I'm going to trust you for this journey of life and for eternity. Help me to follow you, Lord.